0: Father, we do hide ourselves in Christ. He is the one who propitiated for our sins. He satisfied your wrath against our sin. And Lord, He provided the righteousness that would come and cover us, be imputed upon us so that we would be justified as we stand before you, a holy God. And so, Lord, we sing you are our rock of ages, and you have provided for us a way to experience your power and your strength and your presence in our lives through the person of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. So we glorify you this morning, and we don't want to take this moment for granted as we study your word. Help us to honor you in the way in which we listen to your word as it's read and sung and taught today. Lord, may we apply this to our hearts. All of us who are believers, may we be sanctified. May we grow by studying your word. And those who are not believers, Lord, we pray that you would call them to salvation in your Son, Jesus Christ. All this we ask in His name. Amen. You may be seated. We're so privileged to open our Bibles today. Open your word to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, Matthew 22. It's been a month since we've studied in the book of Matthew, so I'm excited to get back to Jesus teaching here today. We are indeed studying the actual words of Jesus It's a parable sometimes this is called the parable of the wedding feast i think better the parable of the wedding guests it's all about who will feast around the table at the marriage supper of the lamb who will enjoy eternal fellowship and sustenance from god forever as we celebrate his son jesus christ for all eternity jesus confrontation of the religious leaders of that day he had been revealing that the Judaism of that day was no longer biblical Judaism. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the priests, the Levites, many others, the authorities of Israel of that day had used Scripture, purposely misinterpreting it for their own personal and political gain. They had created a, a system that contained biblical ideals and practices, but in reality, it was contrary to Scripture. Evidenced by the fact that they rejected Scripture's Messiah when he arrived. And so up on that temple mount in the final week of his life, Jesus is warning the people of Israel that God is turning away from them because of their rejection and bringing Gentiles instead into his kingdom. Of course, the Bible does indicate that God will return and have mercy once again on the people of Israel. But Jesus came to his own people and his own received him not. And so jesus warned the people if they did not follow him if they did not reject the false religion of their day they would not be in his kingdom they would not be around his table well that is the goal of this parable and that's the application of this parable for us as well you can be religious you can even adopt all the accoutrement of christianity you can sing Christian songs, you can attend church, you can listen to Christmas Christian music and give to Christian causes. You can do all of those things and not be in the kingdom of heaven. And the sad truth is that, according to Jesus' own words in Matthew 7, this is going to be a shocking surprise for many people when they arrive at heaven's door. Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, do all these mighty works, all these Christian things? Did we not do all these things? And he will tell them, Depart from me, I never knew you. Now, how do you know if you're in the kingdom? How do you know if you're going to surround the table in the end or if you're on the broad road that leads to destruction? Well, the answer can be found in the parable that Jesus gives us today. Let me read it for us. Matthew 22. I'm going to begin in verse 1, go down to verse 14. Follow along as I read aloud. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops to destroy those murderers and burned their city. And he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, or bad and good, So the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called but few are chosen. This is the Word of God. A number of years ago, I befriended a young man, a police officer. He was not a believer, and we'd gotten to know one another. In fact, he invited me a couple of times to do a ride-along, and I would ride along with him and see what police officers do on their beat. I talked to Christ with him. He was interested in Christ, or he would not have... Uh, wanted me to ride along. He was asking questions. I was giving him the gospel, and I'd done this several times to no avail, really to no effect. I'd given him the gospel. he he just heard it all before. Yeah, 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 I know. Jesus died for my sin. Yeah, 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 I know. I'm supposed to have faith. I I understand all this. I've heard this. uh, Even as a young child, I I heard these things, but I I just don't know if I want to do all that just yet. And so I was always thinking when I had opportunity with this young man, I was always thinking, Lord, show me what truths of scripture to give this young man that will open his heart and his mind to the truth of the gospel and compel him to have faith in christ well one day i had this crazy idea maybe i start by teaching him the doctrine of election what if i started with predestination i know what you're thinking pastor you're an idiot Election is one of those things in the Christian world we sort of are embarrassed about. We sort of keep that hidden away until you're advanced in your faith. Then you sort of spill the beans on God's sovereignty. You you sort of keep that hidden. We're embarrassed about the sovereignty of God. Why would you do this? It's a major turnoff to know that God is sovereign ultimately in salvation. This is a turnoff to lost people. Why did you do this? Well, I do have good precedent. Jesus... Preceded me, spoke often of the doctrine of election. He said early in his ministry, this is John chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So the person whom God draws comes to Christ, is saved, and is raised to the last day. So from beginning to end. In other words, the only people who are saved are the ones God decides to draw. All who the Father gives to me, he says in the same chapter, all who the Father gives to me will come to me. And he goes on to say, I will lose none of whom he gives me. You have election, effectual calling, or irresistible grace, the doctrine of perseverance, all part of this sovereign act of God to save a soul. He said later in that same chapter, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Well, just like today, people back in that day didn't like the doctrine of election. They love the verses about man's responsibility and our need to choose God, repent of our sin, have faith, but they don't like the idea that God ultimately is sovereign over it all. It says later on in chapter 6 of John that after Jesus taught all this, that many who followed Him turned away and no longer walked with Him. By the way, this had happened even earlier in Jesus' ministry, one of the earliest accounts before Jesus even had all of His disciples. You can read about this in Luke chapter 4. It's when He went and visited Nazareth and preached there in the synagogue, His home synagogue. You could say His home church. He says in Luke 4, beginning of verse 24, He said, "'Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown.'" But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, none of the Israelites, none of those people, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. In other words, God chose... This widow and God chose Naaman and not all these other people. Verse 28, it says of the people that were listening to Jesus speak, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down off the cliff. Now, if you've been around church very long, you know this is pretty normal when it comes to the doctrine of election. When someone preaches it, people start looking for a hill they can throw the pastor off of. People don't like this. They don't like the idea. They want to be the commander-in-chief, the sovereign Lord of their own destiny. They don't like the idea that, yes, they have to repent and have faith, but in the end, God has to grant that to them. They don't like that. They want to feel that they have that in their own ability without God. Well, in spite of all this, I decided I would teach this young officer about the doctrine of election, and I began to walk through the doctrine of election with him. I showed them that all mankind, all of us, deserve eternal punishment. We sin, and it's not just because we choose to sin, which we do indeed do. We sin because we are dead in sin. It's a result of spiritual deadness of our hearts that we sin. We are by nature, the Bible says, enemies of God we follow the god of this world which is none other than satan it's our natural position and because of that we deserve god's wrath you don't have to look very far to evidence this fact look at your own heart our own lives are full of sin and evil evil thoughts wicked imaginations angry words you feel at times you can control it you feel at times you can produce some good works but you know down deep inside you're a hypocrite that you harbor all kinds of sinful ideals So the Bible says, we are by nature children of God's just wrath, Ephesians 2, verse 3. But God, Ephesians 2 goes on to say, who is rich in mercy and grace, He has chosen to save many of these wicked people destined for wrath. He will come to these people. His Spirit will speak to them through the Word. These are the people whom He's chosen, and He will regenerate their hearts and will give them a desire to, to have faith and respond to the gospel. These are God's elect, the ones whom He has chosen, the ones for whom He died, the ones who make up the church, the true church. They are the ones who persevere to the end. Here's the ones who will feast forever with God around His banqueting table. Well, at this point, Officer Ben asked me the million-dollar question, how do I know if I'm one of the elect? How do I know if I'm Chosen. Well, that's the question that the passage here today elicits and answers. If many are called, but few are chosen, verse 14, how can I know that I'm one of the chosen? How can I sit at the wedding feast and once there be clothed in the proper attire? Now, this parable, there are two tests given, and we're going to look at each one of these tests to know whether or not we are The chosen. And these two tests flow right out from this parable. The parable really has two parts. You could see it even when we read it moments ago. So let's look at each one of these tests. Test number one test your followship. That's not a grammatical error. It is followship with an O. Let's start by looking at the context. This is the final week, as I said, this is the final week of Jesus' public ministry. It is most likely a Wednesday. Jesus would be arrested Thursday night, killed on Friday, be resurrected on Sunday. Jesus had come to Jerusalem just a few days before, and daily was making trips from Bethany, a, a suburb, really, of Jerusalem. And he was going up, down to the Kidron Valley, and then back up the hill up to the Temple Mount. There, the first part of the week, he cleansed the temple... Remember, the wicked religious leaders had set up this system. Really, it was a racket by which they built the people of Israel. Jesus began by clearing out the temple. Then he began to teach. And his primary task, as we noticed last few weeks we were studying Matthew, his primary task was to condemn false Judaism, to condemn the false religion of Israel of the day. He was challenged by the leaders, the religious leaders, and he gave them a couple of parables, the parable of the two sons, And the parable of the wicked tenants both depicting the falseness of israel's religion how god's mercy how his saving activity had turned away generally speaking from the people of israel because they turned away from the messiah and had turned toward others well this parable follows the same theme you could hear it as we read it you have the king who is clearly god You have the Son who is Jesus. You have the celebration of the Son. This is eternal fellowship and worship of the Messiah. You have the initial invitees. That would be the people of Israel, of course. They're the first to receive the gospel invitation. The gospel came to the Jew first and then to the Gentile or the Greek. You have the servants who are the prophets of God sent to them to call them to union with the Son. And you have widespread rejection. What's different about this parable than with the ones in the earlier chapter is that there is an evangelistic aspect to this. It's not merely that the religion is false, it's now that Jesus is calling people to, to come to the banqueting table. He's beckoning people to not simply turn away from the false religion of Israel, but to turn to something, namely, He Himself, and to follow Christ. Look at the parable again. kingdom of heaven is compared, this is verse 2, to a king who gave a wedding feast for a son. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. They would not come. Again, this is the picture of Israel throughout the ages as they rejected all the servants, all the prophets of God, by and large were rejected. The climax of that rejection, of course, was the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day when the Messiah himself came. Verse 5, they paid no attention. They went off, one to his farm, one another to his business. The rest seized the servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Then it says the king was angry. sent his troops. They destroyed the city. And then he invited, the invitation went out to everybody on the roads, both bad and good. These people were invited to come and fill the wedding hall. And that's what happens in verse 10. So the shocking twist of the story is the fact that the invitees, the original people who were invited to the king's feast for his son, they callously rejected the invitation. Some of them, it says in verse 5, ignored the invitation. They just sort of turned and went about their business. They were too busy for this. Others were worse. They actually took the servants and persecuted and killed them. Again, this is a great representation of how the Jews, by and large, rejected God's call to worship His Son, Jesus Christ. Some ignored, some neglected, some just got the healing or the food that they wanted from Jesus, and then they just went about their business. They did not follow Christ. They did not understand the gospel. They rejected the gospel. They wanted something from Him, but then they got back, back to their lives, got about their own business. These are the ones I think depicted in... Matthew 13, the fibrous soil. You remember the fibrous soil? The seed is sort of lands, sort of goes into the dirt a little bit, but there's all these fibers from the weeds and they choke it out. The worries of the world. They're preoccupied with things they think are more important than their eternity. Now, this brings me to the first sub-point about testing your followership. The question is, do you have a consistent turning to God that's A if you're taking notes, turning to God. This is a part of the test of your fellowship. Following after God, accepting the invitation of the gospel means you have a consistent turning to God throughout your life. John Piper calls it a Godward life. I realize I could have said it more succinctly. I could have said, did you turn to God or did you accept Christ? But that's not really what we have here. To genuinely accept the invitation it means a whole change in occupation. It's a change in your life. These people changed their course of life from being preoccupied with the worries of the world, their farms and their businesses and so forth, to becoming preoccupied with the kingdom and getting the right clothes and preparing their hearts and making their way and traveling perhaps a great distance to the king's kingdom and and going into the kingdom hall. They had to change their schedules. They had to change their clothes. They had to change their lifestyle. They began making their way to this palace or house of the king so they... Change their direction, making their way to the heavenly city. This is the meaning of the word repentance, turning. Now, I'm sure there are many people, perhaps even in this room, perhaps watching, many people say, Oh, yeah, I, I accepted Jesus. I, I came to faith. In 1993, I turned to Christ and I punched my ticket. I'm going to heaven. It's a positive response to the gospel, which I suppose, in some sense, can be commended, but that's where their turning to God ended. That's the last time they really changed anything about their lives in terms of following after Christ. There's no growth, no theological maturity, no spiritual maturity, no bearing of the fruit of the Spirit, no real change at all. The the turning sort of started and ended in one moment. The response to the invitation of the king should change their whole course of life. But you have those people who sort of nod and go back to their business. Friend, is this your testimony? As you look at your salvation, as you look at your fellowship, as you inspect, is it characterized by a constant Godward life, a constant turning toward God, a, a drive, a desire to follow after Christ? Or is it marked by some decision you made many years ago never to be thought much about since. Test yourselves. Paul said to the Thessalonians, he knows that they are God's elect. Why? First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And you became imitators of us and the Lord. You became an example. The word of the Lord sounded forth from you, he says. Your faith has gone forth. It's been reported of everywhere so that we need not say anything. So it wasn't just a decision and Paul moved on and never heard of the Thessalonians again. No, this is something that changed their lives. They continued to turn away and turn toward god their reception of the invitation of the gospel was not just a nod or an emotional moment or an affirmation and mentally assenting to the things of the gospel no it produced a turning in their lives a constant consistent forever turning in their lives toward god by the way paul says in the next verse that they were turning away from Idols The people in the parable they would have had to turn away from certain things they would have had had to turn down perhaps Ways to make more money or perhaps other opportunities They would have had to turn those down because their effort now was to prepare themselves for the wedding This gives us another type of turning. This is a turning from sin. That's B if you're taking notes these people turned away from their other desires ladies and gentlemen confession and repentance are not just a one-time thing in the christian life that's the beginning of your confession and your repentance you read the, the letters to the churches you read the instruction from the apostles to the churches they're constantly telling people to confess and repent and continue to turn away from their idols and turn away from their sin the people in the parable ostensibly they spent the rest of their lives turning away from their earthly desires and turning toward the kingdom. They saw the other people who were the original invitees to the celebration. They saw them pursuing all their pursuits of money and comfort in this life. They saw their big, beautiful fields. Perhaps they themselves may have failed momentarily, but what marked them is they Persevered and they're turning away from sin and turning to God. This is what the perseverance of the saints is all about. You ever wonder where that phrase comes from? It comes from Revelation 14:12. In the midst of this whole world that's worshiping the beast, that's worshiping the false God, there are the believers. Here is the call for the perseverance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. These are people who who are determined to live this life doing what God says and with their eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, having faith in Him. Friend, test your fellowship. Are you a true disciple? Have you truly answered the invitation not just with a momentary or emotional, fleeting affirmation. No. Has your whole trajectory of life changed? Are you constantly turning to God and away from sin? Have you responded to the invitation to the wedding? That's the first test. The test of fellowship. Do you follow Jesus? The second part. Of this test is found in the second part of the parable this is very obviously part two of the story it sort of changes gears midstream Jesus had something specific in mind for us together let's look at it again verse 11 when the king came to look at the guests he saw there a man who had no wedding garment he said to him friend how did you get in here without a wedding garment he was speechless and the king said to the attendants, "'Bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen.'" Second, test your faith. Test your faith. What are you trusting in? What do you understand about what you believe and what you're trusting in Christ to do or has done for you? What does your faith look like? Clearly, in the story here of the parable, here's this king. He doesn't like wedding crashers. This guy's a wedding crasher, right? And the wedding crasher is obvious because he does not have the proper attire. He should be wearing clothes appropriate for the wedding feast. He does not have those clothes on. And we have this very dramatic response by the king. I, I was married and, a, and my wife and I are part of a very large church and we had many, many people who came to our wedding. And I can guarantee you there were many people who were not dressed appropriately for a wedding. We did not get that angry about those people. In fact, we didn't get angry at all, and we certainly didn't cast them into outer darkness. What's going on here? Well, you have to kind of follow this theme through the Bible. This idea of being clothed is not something new, especially for the people who would have been around there, these Jewish people who were up on the Temple Mount celebrating Passover, they would have understood this theme. When uh, humankind first sinned, when they fell into sin and depravity, our whole world, man's dominion following after it, the world. Remember what God did about Adam and Eve's shame and guilt? Remember what God did? The first thing He did was slaughtered an anim- animal, right? For their shame and their sin and their guilt, He clothed them in skins of a perfect animal, probably a lamb or a goat. We're not told what kind of animal it is. Genesis 3.21 simply says, He clothed them in garments of animal skins. Now, the first death, the first bloodshed, the first sacrifice was made so that man could stand before God in righteous clothing, without shame, without guilt. Well, this became a theme throughout the Old Testament. This is something that the Old Testament prophets picked up on this idea of standing before God clothed, not in your own righteousness and certainly not in your own sin, but clothed in God's righteousness. Our righteousness, Isaiah said, is like filthy rags. We can't stand before God justified. Our righteousness falls far short of this. Job spoke about this in Job 29:14. He said he put on The alien righteousness of God as a clothing, as a cloak. The Reformers are the ones that started calling it the alien righteousness, not meaning from some alien, but from somebody else. Righteousness that I could not produce has to be covering me for me to stand before God. And Job speaks of this, not his righteousness, but of righteousness clothing him. David sang about it regarding the priest on behalf of the people. They are clothed with God's righteousness so that the people then can... Come to God and worship God, Psalm 132, verse 9. Isaiah used this theme several times. He talks about God himself being clothed in righteousness in chapter 59. But then how God, in chapter 61 of Isaiah, in his kindness, will clothe us with his righteousness. Isaiah sixty-one ten. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. Zechariah talks about this in Zechariah 3 verse 4 about how in salvation we come to God clothed in our filth, clothed in our sin, and our filthy garments are removed and they are replaced with the pure garments of righteousness. Again, it's not our righteousness, it's God's righteousness. It's the righteousness of the Holy One. Isaiah says in chapter 11 verse 5, it's the Messiah's righteousness like a garment that is applied to us as clothing. So, from the beginning, the message is simple. It's clear. To stand before God, to communion with God, to have a right relationship with God, to enjoy God forever in the wedding celebration, you must be clothed in true righteousness, righteousness that is not our own, true righteousness, righteousness that is God's alone. Early in Jesus' ministry, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot stand before God. He said, you must be holy as God is holy. Now, that's impossible. None of us can be holy. We cannot achieve that level of perfection, that level of righteousness. So we need exactly what Adam and Eve needed and what they received, what the people of Israel needed, what David sang about, what Isaiah and David talked about. We need God's righteousness to clothe us so that we're not like the fellow here in this parable. Well, how does that happen? Paul explains how that happens. He uses an Old Testament example in Romans 4, how are we clothed in the righteousness of God? Let me read to you the beginning of Romans 4, what then shall we say? was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by his works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, particularly the promises about the Messiah. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due... And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted as righteousness just as david also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom god counts righteous apart from works blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven whose sins are covered blessed is the man against the lord will not count his sin paul says listen abraham was not clothed in his own righteousness his own righteousness gives him no credit it's not the right clothes it gives him no credit in eternity he cannot stand before God and and boast that's why it said in in the parable that Jesus gives the man was speechless he knew he was not clothed properly no Abraham believed in the truth that God had announced regarding the Messiah and Abraham did that. When he exerted that faith, a transaction happened. Righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ was applied to his account. Or you could say it another way, he was clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We just think about this. Naked, come to thee for dress. We need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So that's the first part of your test of faith here. Is it faith in Jesus? Ladies and gentlemen, this is one among many reasons why the gospel is exclusive. It is Christ alone who saves. It is only His righteousness that can be applied to you for you to stand before God. And so you must have faith in Jesus Christ. When you do that, a transaction happens. It's called justification. And when justification happens, you stand before God with the righteousness of Christ adorning you. This is faith in Jesus, and it is faith in Jesus alone, solus Christus, Christ alone. Only His righteousness provides you the clothing you need to get into the kingdom and celebrate forever. So that's A, faith in Jesus. B, what we also see here, here is you test your faith. Is there hope in Jesus? Ask yourself, is there hope? I want you to notice something. Uh, one of the uh, hermeneutical or interpreting principles that you have when you you need to have when you come to a parable is what's odd that stands out what strange thing stands out does this mean something you need to ask these kind of questions and one of the things that stood out to me as I read this parable is the anger of the king did you notice how angry the king was verse 7 the king was angry he sent troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city verse 13 he discovers this guy wearing the wrong clothes Bind him hand and foot. Cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't need to get into this too much, but the wrath of the king is perfectly justified. The wrath of God against sin is perfectly justified. It is right and good and just. It is righteous. It is holy that God would punish someone, us humans, with eternal justice. If you do not believe that, you don't grasp the depth and horror of your sin. You certainly don't grasp the magnificence and perfection and holiness of God. What I want you to understand, though, is the transformation that takes place when you have faith in Christ. When you have faith in Christ, we have this wrath of God that's bearing down on us, this anger of God for our sin, this justice that's coming to us like a freight train. It's headed to us, and and we can ignore the invitation, and we can forget about all this stuff and just pretend that all roads somehow lead to God, and yet this wrath of God is headed straight at us. When you have faith in Christ and are clothed with His righteousness, suddenly the fear of God's wrath can be turned into Gratitude. We no longer fear God's wrath. We have gratitude. The fear of death is turned into eager anticipation. The fear of eternity and what will happen beyond the grave is turned into hope. Why? Because now you hope in Christ. You don't have to worry that you're going to sit there at the banqueting table with the wrong clothes on. You know you're clothed in Christ. You trust in what Christ has done, and you hope in that. You live life hoping, believing that one day this celebration is coming your way. You don't fear the future. You don't fear death. You don't fear anything because to be absent from the flesh is to be present with the Lord. You know that to live is to be like Christ, but to die is gain. So you're full of hope in Christ, and you're full of hope in Christ because He's provided you something that you could never produce, perfect perfect righteousness to clothe you with the kingdom. Those who have not genuinely trusted in Christ, you should read the anger of the King and you should fear. You should understand that there is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth for eternity. Your destiny is outer darkness. Well, I explained this all to Officer Ben, and it clicked. Ben bowed his head one day there in the police cruiser. We pulled over to the side. He received Christ and began turning his life over to Jesus at that point. He understood what Christ had done for him. Last I checked, I haven't talked to him in a number of years. Last I checked, he was a big part of his church, faithfully serving there. Here in Christ, you can find the joy that he found. And that all of us found, found when we came to Christ seeking to follow Him and have genuine faith in Him. Let's thank God for what He's done in Christ. Father, we do thank You for what You've done. We pray now, Lord, that You would bless us as we seek to continue to turn away from sin and toward Christ. We pray, Lord, that our faith is genuine. It is in what Christ has accomplished on our behalf that He is. Yes, provided payment for sin, but also he's provided us a righteousness whereby we are clothed so we can banquet at the table forever with you. Lord, for those who don't know you, we pray that they would see this and take great warning. I believe Jesus was looking to the crowds, not just condemning the the false religion of Israel that day, I believe he was looking at the crowds with a, a sincere beckoning that they would reject false religion, that it would reject a life of self, and they would follow after him, having faith in what he's accomplished. And so, Lord, I pray the same would be true of those that are here today who don't know you, stir up within their hearts a desire to follow after you. Lord, we can, we look at our lives and we by no means are perfect, but if we look at our lives and we see that there is a desire to follow you, there is a a constant turning away from sin and confession and repentance, following after Christ, and there's a faith and understanding of the truths of Christ and our trust is in Christ alone, I pray, Lord, you'd fill us with assurance and joy, the joy of your salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you'll stand with me, I'm going to give a benediction, but we are going to uh, sit again after that, and Pastor Ryan's going to introduce for us all of our new members, all right? This benediction is inspired by Romans 8, verses 1 to 4. Go now, encouraged, that if you are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. He has set you free and clothed you in His righteousness to celebrate at God's table forever and ever, amen.